0: T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. Dating from 1922, The Wasteland is a very challenging poem, dense with literary references and allusions, what scholars refer to as intertextuality. The references are from both the Western cultural tradition, classical European sources including Augustine, Dante, Shakespeare, the Bible, Ovid, Baudelaire, Milton, Webster, Spencer, Marvell, Goldsmith, and Wagner, and the Eastern tradition, Buddhist and Hindu scriptures, not to mention a dizzying array of languages that include Italian, German, French, and Sanskrit. Adding to all that, we have a number of explanatory notes by the author that may in some cases complicate our reading. The only previous example of this that we've encountered is from Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and we found his marginal notes in that poem to be problematic as well. One way to think of all these intertextual elements is to see the poem as trying to make sense of a present that is almost overwhelmed by the weight of the past. Despite all this, and despite its difficulty, the Wasteland is one of the essential poems of the 20th century. Eliot himself suggested that the poem's difficulty was part of the way it depicts the challenge of coming to terms with modern life. It is also a poem that owes almost as much to Eliot's good friend and fellow poet Ezra Pound as to Eliot himself, because Pound was instrumental in editing and shaping the various drafts into its final form what Pound referred to as performing the poem's caesarean operation, and Eliot dedicated the poem to his friend in gratitude. Il migliore fabbro means the better craftsman. Eliot had written much of it in fragmented form in a sanitarium in Lausanne, Switzerland, where he was taking a rest cure from his banking job. Even more than proofrock. The Wasteland is a poem about the alienation and despair of modern life. The opening section of the poem about April being the cruelest month is an ironic inversion of Chaucer's general prologue to the Canterbury Tales. Let's hear Eliot's opening lines. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. End quote. Chaucer's poem, whose general prologue begins, Juan la Taprio with the short of Sota, the drought of March had passed to the rota, or in other words, when that April with its sweet showers pierces the drought of March to the root describes April as being the source of rains that nourish the land's fertility and a time for religious pilgrimages. This sets up the frame tale for a group of pilgrims making a journey from London to Canterbury to see the tomb of St. Thomas a Becket. But in the wasteland, the land is dry and sterile. The Fisher King imagery takes its origin from the mythology of King Arthur and the quest for the Holy Grail. The grail-seekers must obtain the grail in order to heal the fisher-king, who is wasting away, suffering from a wound in the thigh that causes the land to be barren. There is an ancient tradition here in which the body of the king is connected to the land. The barrenness of the kingdom makes it obvious that the king's wounded thigh is a metaphor for the genitals like his land, the king himself is sterile. In The Wasteland, Eliot sees the land as being not just literally, but spiritually barren and dry. The poem is filled with references to death, decay, lovelessness, and the emptiness of modern life. In place of love and passion, we find only sex, but it's a very indifferent and joyless sex. Yet for all that, The Wasteland does offer a vision of redemption and restoration. Let's look at some other mythological allusions that are important to the poem. You might recall the legend of Philomela, the Nightingale, from when we looked at John Keats' The Eve of St. Agnes. Drawing upon Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, which is an excellent source for people and events mythological, we learn that Tarius who was the king of Thrace, was married to Procne, but he raped his sister Philomela and cut out her tongue to prevent her from revealing what had happened to her. But Philomela wove her story into a tapestry, or in some accounts a robe, that she sent to her sister. Procne cut up her son, cooked him, and served him to Tereus, waiting until he had finished the meal to reveal the truth. He pursued her, and the gods changed all three into birds, Tereus into a hawk, Procne into a swallow, and Philomela into a nightingale, which supposedly sings so sweetly because of the great tragedy she suffered. A second important mythological source is the legend of Tiresias, not to be confused with Tereus. Tiresias was the greatest of the prophets of classical mythology. He was changed into a woman by the gods as punishment for killing a female snake, and remained female for seven, or in some versions, eight years, until he killed a male snake. Having experience as both a man and a woman, he was called upon by Zeus and Hera to settle an argument about which of the sexes derived the greatest pleasure in making love. Tiresias claimed that the female had more pleasure And as a result, Hera struck him blind. The obvious moral here is never to get trapped by the gods into settling their dispute, because bad things always happen. The whole Trojan War was the result of Paris being asked to judge a beauty contest. Incidentally, it was Tiresias who revealed to Oedipus that he would kill his father and marry his mother. Tiresias' claim that the female had greater pleasure in lovemaking put Zeus into a difficult position, because one god cannot undo what another god has done, so Zeus could not restore Tiresias' sight. But in partial compensation for the sight that was lost to him, Zeus gave Tiresias the power to know the future, which is how he became a prophet. Let's return now to the poem. We've already heard the opening lines of The Wasteland. The first section of the poem, entitled The Burial of the Dead, makes many references to destruction, desolation, and dryness. Beginning about line 21, A heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you, or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. We also see in this section a number of references to falsehood and deception. For example, Madame Sosostris, famous clairvoyante. Had a bad cold, nevertheless, is known to be the wisest woman in Europe with a wicked pack of cards. The pack of cards here refers to tarot cards used in fortune telling. The city of London is depicted surrealistically in these lines Unreal city, under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet, flowed up the hill and down King William Street to where St. Mary Woolnoth kept the hours with a dead sound on the final stroke of nine. In the second section of the poem, A Game of Chess, we encounter references to Virgil's Aeneid, Milton's Paradise Lost, and another reference to the Philomela legend here in a representation above the antique mantle was displayed as though a window gave upon the sylvan scene the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forced yet there the nightingale filled all the desert with inviolable voice, and still she cried, and still the world pursues. Jug-jug to dirty ears. Jug-jug refers to the sound that the nightingale supposedly makes. In this same section, juxtaposed with the beautiful music of the nightingale and the Philomela story, we have fragments of conversation that may have been based on actual conversations Elliot had with his wife while she was hospitalized for what was then called nervousness or what we would term mental illness. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you're thinking. Think. I think we are in Rat's Alley, where the dead men lost their bones. What is that noise? The wind under the door. What is that noise now? What is the wind doing? Nothing. Again, nothing. End quote. In this part of the poem, we frequently see the juxtaposition of bits of mundane conversations, or sometimes of conversations in which speakers are struggling to make sense of something, much as Eliot is struggling to make sense of a world so dense with all that has gone before, all the history, the mythology, and the literature. Consequently, the poem often moves from mythology and prophecy to trite everyday conversation. Yet even the trite and everyday utterances often seem charged with meaning, as in a game of chess, when Hurry Up, Please It's Time, first heard at line 141, the equivalent of Last Call in an English pub, is transformed into something deeper and more apocalyptic, sounding almost like the last call for humanity or for the world. Similarly, what is that noise that we saw in line 117 is both the plea of a mentally ill woman and also a question about a world that is too confusing for us to make sense of it. It is in this second section of the poem, A Game of Chess, that we get part of a pub conversation that again seems both mundane and charged with meaning and is punctuated by the repetition of, hurry up, please, it's time. I can't help it, she said, pulling a long face. It's them pills I took to bring it off, she said. She's had five already and nearly died of young George. The chemist said it would be all right, but I've never been the same. You are a proper fool, I said. Well, if Albert won't leave you alone, there it is, I said. What you get married for if you don't want children? Hurry up, please, it's time. This conversation is most likely about a woman's attempt to induce a miscarriage. The significance of this scene is that it involves a stifling of natural fertility, along with references to loveless sex. And all this is happening at the same time as the land is suffering from a spiritual barrenness and a lack of fertility, represented in the allusions to the story of the Fisher King. Yet at the same time, we see fertility being subverted in the example of the woman trying to self-abort her pregnancy. The poem's third section, The Fire Sermon, is also richly embedded with references to mythology and literature. Sweet Thames run softly till I end my song is an apparent reference to Edmund Spenser, And these lines, But at my back in a cold blast I hear the rattle of the bones and chuckles spread from ear to ear. And a bit later, but at my back from time to time I hear the sound of horns and motors, which shall bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter in the spring. Such lines clearly echo those of Andrew Marvell's To His Coy Mistress, but at my back I always hear Time's winged chariot hurrying near. This section of the poem also contains references to Sir Parsifal and the quest for the Holy Grail. In the Grail legends, it is the virtuous knight Parsifal or Percival, who has the power to heal the Fisher King's wound and restore the land. We also see repetitions of some of the names and phrases from earlier in the poem. The jug-jug sound of the nightingale, the phrase so rudely forced that refers to Philomela's rape, and the name Tereus, which is cut off in mid-word, perhaps fitting given that he cut out Philomela's tongue. The words unreal city are also repeated from the earlier section and under the brown fog of a winter noon. The earlier reference was to a winter dawn. We now hear a first-person narration from Tiresias, whom I mentioned earlier, and who will introduce himself as blind, throbbing between two lives. Remember that he was a man who had been a woman for seven years, hence the throbbing-between-two-lives part, and was blinded by Hera or Juno. He appears here as an observer of an incident between a woman who is a typist and her lover, a clerk, described as a young man carbuncular, that is, pimply. I, Tiresias, though blind, throbbing between two lives, Old man with wrinkled female breasts can see at the violet hour, the evening hour that strives homeward and brings the sailor home from sea. The typist home at tea time clears her breakfast, lights her stove, and lays out food in tins. Out of the window perilously spread her drying combinations touched by the sun's last rays. On the divan are piled, at night her bed, stockings, slippers, Camisoles and stays. I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dugs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. I too awaited the expected guest. He, the young man carbuncular, arrives, a small house agent's clerk with one bold stare, one of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. The time is now propitious. As he guesses, the meal is ended. She is bored and tired. Endeavors to engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once, exploring hands encounter no defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. And I, Teresius, have foresuffered all and acted on this same divan or bed. I, who have sat by Thebes below the wall and walked among the lowest of the dead, bestows one final patronizing kiss and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. She turns and looks a moment in the glass, hardly aware of her departed lover. Her brain allows one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done, and I'm glad it's over. This is a remarkably loveless encounter. After their dinner, food laid out from tins, the young man gropes the young woman, finds her indifferent to his caresses, and the two have sex. Afterward, however, she is hardly aware of her departed lover, and her only half-formed thought is, well, now that's done, and I'm glad it's over. So their encounter is not only loveless, but joyless as well. This theme of loveless sex is also enacted later in the same section of the poem, beginning at line 292 through the voices of the Daughters of the Thames, who, according to Eliot's note, are equivalent to the Rhine Daughters in Richard Wagner's opera, The Twilight of the Gods. Trams and dusty trees, Highbury bore me, Richmond and Kew undid me, by Richmond I raised my knees, supine on the floor of a narrow canoe. My feet are at Moorgate, and my heart under my feet. After the event, he wept. He promised a new start. I made no comment. What should I resent? So again, we have this theme of sex without love, sordid and secretive. The Thames daughters have the voices of prostitutes. The very short fourth section of the poem is called Death by Water. Phlebas the Phoenician, a fortnight dead, forgot the cry of gulls and the deep sea swell and the profit and loss. A current under sea picked his bones in whispers. As he rose and fell, he passed the stages of his age and youth, entering the whirlpool. Gentile or Jew, O you who turn the wheel and look to windward, Consider Phlebas, who was once handsome and tall as you, quote. And again we see these images of death and decay. About the fifth section, What the Thunder Said, Eliot's own note reads, In the first part of part five, three themes are employed, the journey to Emmaus, the approach to the chapel perilous, and the present decay of Eastern Europe. By the journey to Emmaus, Eliot refers to the journey of Christ's disciples to the village of Emmaus after his crucifixion, in which he appears to them and speaks with them, but they do not recognize him. The approach to the chapel perilous refers to the Parsifal myth, where the chapel perilous is the place of his testing. If he succeeds, the wounded fisher king will be healed and the land restored. There are more images of death and drought. He who was living is now dead. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. Here is no water but only rock. Rock and no water and the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we would stop and drink. Amongst the rock one cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountain mouth of carious teeth that cannot spit, here one can neither stand, nor lie, nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. Note the repeated references to dryness and thunder without rain. From a footnote of Eliot's in this part of the poem, we also learn that he is alluding to an account by the polar explorer Shackleton of one of his Antarctic expeditions, in which the explorers always thought there was one more person among them than they could actually count. "'Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together.' But when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you. Eliot connects this to the story of Jesus' disciples on the Emmaus Road, being unaware that their risen Lord was walking among them. There are lots of images in this section of crumbling civilization, as in these lines. Falling Towers, Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria... Vienna, London, unreal. There are mirages, references to empty chapels, which suggest a loss of faith, and so on. And then we finally see words from the Upanishads, commentaries on Hindu scriptures that provide the hope for redemption. The words datta, dayadvam, dhamyata mean literally give, sympathize, and control, usually referring to almsgiving, compassion, and self-control. It is this prescription, these attributes that lead to, in the final line of the poem, Shanti, 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 which Eliot tells us is translated as, the peace which passeth understanding. Despite all the gloom and doom, the poem does provide a prescription for redemption at the end. However, the poem is still very much weighted down with these commentaries and all these heavy allusions. In fact, Eliot has suggested that this poem's many allusions to mythology and classic literature provide a framework or a kind of order to hold the poem together. How well that succeeds in doing so is arguable, However, in depicting this desire to make sense of a world that is fragmented, confusing, and weighted down by all that has gone before, the Wasteland provides a unique vision of the experience of modernity. Our struggle as readers of the poem is a metaphor for our struggle to understand the modern world. I want to point out two connections to Eliot's famous poem. The 1970s progressive rock group Genesis have a song called The Cinema Show on their album Selling England by the Pound that is a loose adaptation of the love affair scene between the typist and the young man Carbuncular and also includes references to Tiresias, though the Genesis version is rather more optimistic in tone than Elliot's. The lyrics go... Home from work, our Juliet clears her morning meal. She dabs her skin with pretty smells concealing to appeal. I will make my bed, she said, but turned to go. Can she be late for her cinema show? Romeo locks his basement flat and scurries up the stair with head held high and floral tie, a weekend millionaire. I will make my bed with her tonight, he cries. Can he fail, armed with his chocolate surprise? Take a little trip back with Father Tiresias. Listen to the old one speak of all that he has lived through. I have crossed between the poles. For me there is no mystery. Once a man like the sea I raged, once a woman like the earth I gave. But there is in fact more earth than sea. End quote. There is also a wonderful adaptation of The Wasteland in the form of a graphic novel by Martin Rousson, published in 1990. Rousson's version of the poem is a parody in the style of a hard-boiled detective film noir of the 1940s. The sign on the door of the detective's office reads Marlowe and Fisher, and he's reading the Raymond Chandler novel The Big Sleep as the story opens, in April, of course. The graphic novel even parodies Eliot's footnotes, and yet there's an affectionate quality to the parody. If you can locate a copy, it is delightful and a nice way to reward yourself like a dessert after working your way through Eliot's original.